Hello, humans, and welcome to Bizzlecast, episode 3. Hopefully you joined us for the first two Bizzlecasts. Now you should check them out at soundcloud.com. Today, I'm going to change it up a little, because Bizzlecast 1, very heavy on pop culture, especially dealing with mega movie franchises and the materialist aspects of those franchises. And as we talked about hyper-consumerism, Bizzlecast 2, going into simulations of reality, um, while cool, um, also was pretty abstract at points. And so I want to bring it back down to earth today a little bit. I want to talk about sports, specifically American professional sports. um, And I include college basketball and college football, players who don't get paid but make a lot of money for everybody. We might get into that later. I love sports, or at least I have loved sports at different points in my life. kind of goes in and out. I always follow it if it's just checking the scores, even when I don't watch for months or years at a time. I only watch all of the Eagles games because it's kind of a social event, and I think that's one of the many brilliant things the NFL has established for itself is it's not just watching a game, it's a huge event with men and women and food and alcohol and you hang out and you put time aside and you got the baby or you put the baby with someone else and you just do it. I really don't care that much about football, which is (laughs) kind of heretical in Philadelphia and I get crap from my friends all the time, but honestly... There's so much wrong with football, and as a sport, it's just not that compelling, I don't think. Unless it's assigned meaning beyond what's really happening, and I think that's the crux of what people love about sports. The actual games are interesting, but we assign this huge level of drama, of human drama. And sports is fascinating to me, both because I love sports and because... I'm a wannabe philosopher. Uh, Sports represent everything that's good and everything that's messed up about America in a neat little package. And it's technically played out through nine innings or 60 minutes or 48 minutes in basketball. But the real drama is obviously off the court. I've often described sports as reality TV for men. And... If you just look at them side by side, it's essentially the same thing. First of all, most importantly, they're competitions. There are people on both sides. Sometimes there's many sides, like in The Bachelor or something like that. Um, In professional sports, it's pretty much always two sides, although individual sports, like in the Olympics, obviously there's a lot of competitors. But we have the ones we like, and we got the ones we don't like. We got the ones we're rooting for, rooting against totally apathetic about. I didn't even know The Bachelor was still on television, to be totally honest with you. I didn't know. And I was at a bar one night, and there weren't a lot of people there, and there was this woman, this, like, pretty normal-looking, you know, girl woman in her, you know, early 30s. I didn't have cable, and she lived down the street, and so she would come to the bar to watch The Bachelor. And... I was just so hypnotized by the entire process because I remember watching The Bachelor when we were in college. 
And I think then it was called Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire or something like that. I can't remember the exact title, but it was essentially The Bachelor. In fact, it was exactly like The Bachelor. So I always just think of it like The Bachelor. Sophomore year, we were in my friend Eric's room. He had the only TV. It was this old box screen and he had VCR where we watched hockey games, taped hockey games that his family would send him. Uh, and he'd ignore the scores. He was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. He'd ignore the scores for weeks at a time um, and put us all in a cone of silence about hockey. And then he'd watch the tapes weeks later. Um, I love you, Eric. Shout out. And it was fascinating because we'd never seen reality TV, really. This is about 2002 or 2003. And... We didn't know we were watching reality television because there wasn't reality television. Arguably, MTV in the 90s with the real world and road rules and even the dating shows they had, like, singled out with Jenny McCarthy is just so amazing. Oh, my God. I still have such a crush on her. It almost makes me watch The View, honestly, and I never thought I'd utter those words. I haven't watched it, and I probably never will, but anyways... But MTV with the real world really created the reality TV genre. And so those of us who were teenagers in the 90s when all this was going on, and and MTV was still cool back then. It was really cool. It was like the thing. People watched the music awards and the video awards, and it meant a lot. So even though the term reality TV was, was sort of bandied about, it hadn't really attained social currency. But that didn't really matter because the concept was in our brains from when we were teenagers. And so The Bachelor was an easy sell to us because even though we hadn't seen that much between the real world and The Bachelor, it was still kind of the same idea. And obviously when you're a teenager, you're abnormally impressionable to adult or semi-adult concepts. In the same way, as a quick side note, I think it's pretty clear um, just ignore the career trajectories of Claire Danes and Jared Leto, who I think personally are both amazing, and I love the choices they've made with their career, and now they're getting the recognition for it. But those of us who watch My So-Called Life and were totally hypnotized by it, as I was, because there was nothing on television, dramas specifically for teenagers, but so real that were not preachy at all. That just didn't exist. And now I think we kind of take it for granted because of all the cable networks. Although there's really not on my so-called life that I'm aware of uh, in today's world. If that's the case, then I feel bad for teenagers today. And I think reality TV has stepped in place of something like my so-called life. Not because it's similar at all, but because it's something that many teenagers watch and talk about. It's the show now, or in this case, hundreds of shows. And for whatever reason, people aren't getting sick of it. And kids who are growing up with reality TV, instead of having much deeper dramas like My So-Called Life, are really getting a skewed picture of what the world is about. There's so much reality television. It's almost dumb to call it reality television or its own category because it's at least a genre. I mean, it really spans multiple genres. You throw in cooking shows and travel shows. And and this is the perfect real-world example of not only a simulation, an action that's blatantly a simulation, 
because you're living your experiences through other people. And that part of the simulation is very conscious. You're you know, agreeing to kind of give up yourself and kind of join with this person on screen temporarily and live their life. A quick apology for those sirens in the background during that segment. My gentrified Philadelphia neighborhood is apparently now downtown Detroit. And other than the competitive nature of sports and reality TV, there's the rooting factor. And the rooting factor is fascinating because people certainly root for different teams. They're going to root for their own home teams when it's applicable. But now, especially with the NFL and the NBA, national ratings are so high, a lot of people are watching national games. They're watching games that aren't their team. And unless they have a specific antipathy towards a city or a benevolent feeling towards a city, they find other reasons to root one way or the other. Now, this is where fantasy football comes in and betting because... People don't like sports as much as they think they like sports, in my opinion, and that's where betting comes in. When you bet on it, you get interested in a way you weren't before because you got money riding on it. Now, certainly I've seen people bet on one team and end up rooting for the other, but for the most part, it's a way of getting you into the game. And I'm not sure it's healthy, but forget healthy. It's not really authentic. If so many people are watching sports for money reasons, certainly changes the complexion of what the game is all about. And I think girls and guys get very similar sorts of pleasure out of reality shows and sports, respectively, in terms of the psychological buttons it pushes, in terms of just filling up time. But in very different ways, both sports and reality TV are essentially simplified versions of the American dream, which we claim to care about so much. And this, of course, is where sports and reality TV diverge greatly. And, you know, I don't want this to become a guy thing and a girl thing, because the truth is, there are a lot of women that like sports, and there are a lot of guys who like reality TV, even though probably 75% of them would never admit it openly. They claim they're just watching it with their girlfriends or their wives, but they're actually loving it. While both sports and reality TV are competitions on a national stage with high stakes, or at least reality TV seems like it has high stakes, sports is more in line with sort of the traditional view of the American dream. Because when you contrast it to reality TV, sure, there are people like LeBron and Dwight Howard and Steph Curry and Tom Brady and Albert Pujols, name any big superstar. They are born with natural physical talents, but they still work their asses off. And it's easy to criticize athletes for making a ridiculous amount of money. Bottom line is, there are just as many sons or daughters of rich people who inherit way more money than athletes make, even the best athletes. And the athletes have to work their asses off. And usually that starts when they're a kid and doesn't stop until they retire in their 20s or hopefully 30s if they can stay healthy and viable. So hard work is one aspect of sports that is authentic. The physicality of sports, of course, has been 
highly appealing to human beings going back at least to the Greek times with the original Olympics and manifested in different ways in every culture going back, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We respect the athleticism, respect the physicality. It's easy to look at football and just say people love violence or men especially love violence. There are certainly men out there who take great pleasure in seeing people just get plastered and floored on the football field. But I think a lot of people appreciate the physical attributes and dedication for players to even put their bodies in those positions. And I think an interesting kind of subconscious thing going on with sports is that over the past few decades, Americans have gotten fatter and fatter and less and less in shape, while at the same time, athletes have gotten bigger, stronger, and faster. A guy like LeBron just didn't exist 30 years ago. Certainly a big man like, you know, Wilt Chamberlain or Kareem, who were very athletic for being so tall, but they're just freaks of nature, especially in the NBA, but also the other sports as well. I just wonder if there's an added level of vicarious living here by people who are overweight and unhealthy. And we know that that's the majority of Americans. And it would be interesting to see of the four major sports, football, baseball, hockey, and basketball, what the average weight of a man is for each of those sports. Uh, it's probably baseball or football. Um, football just because it includes so many people, but baseball just because of the whole hot dog and soda culture. And guys who just sit there consuming like 3,000 calories and beer and food in a single night. So we can see here that there are numerous levels of desires in terms of the personal issues that we kind of put on athletes. The physicality, as we talked about, Definitely the money, although again, I think people really overestimate the ease of attaining money as an athlete and really underestimate how difficult it is to even get into a point where you're making seven figures or more. It's extremely rare, and those people have to work a lot harder than the kids of rich people, and those guys have to work a lot harder than someone who wins the lottery or wins a reality television show. And I think true sports fans appreciate all of this. In some ways, I think hockey, with hockey, because it's such an exhausting sport, I mean, you can't be on the ice for more than a minute at a time before you collapse, essentially. And so they have lines, as they're called, which are basically group substitutions every 45 seconds or so, and there's four lines. So if you play 20 minutes out of the 60, that's actually well above average. And hockey players are so in shape, and I think because hockey is a niche sport that gets basically zero national ratings, but the bigger teams at least, and the bigger cities get huge local ratings. It's become such a localized sport. And because of hockey players' personalities, which for the most part are really nice guys, and it's hard to believe because they're just crushing each other on the ice. But for the most part, other than some thugs, which the NHL is trying to get rid of, hockey players are the most humble and down-to-earth guys which make them terrible interviews, but 
who really cares? I guess I shouldn't say who really cares because there aren't just post-game interviews now. There are pre-game interviews, there are in-game interviews, there are halftime interviews, and there's all the analysis before and afterwards. And so hockey, I think, has retained a kind of purity because of the localization, because of the personality of the athletes, and because hockey fans, I think, are the most hardcore of all the fans. Unless you grow up playing hockey, which people do, not just in Canada, but in the Midwest and the Northeast for sure. I certainly didn't, and I loved hockey growing up. But hockey fans are so hardcore because as simple as it looks, if you just watch a few minutes and don't know what you're watching, it's an extremely complex game. Not in terms of the rules or even in terms of you know running all these different plays like the NFL or even in basketball, but it's complex in that it's happening extremely fast. And following the puck on old school TVs was almost impossible. So in order to be a fan, unless you were going to every game, you had to know the game well enough that you could tell where the puck was based solely on the position of the players, where their eyes were, what their stick positions are, and so forth. Now the advent of big screen HD televisions is a big boon um, and boost to hockey entertainment watching at home. But I found in the Northeast at least, certainly in Philly, that when you go to games, the people there, if you ask them, most of them would say hockey was their favorite sport. And it's not even close. You know, Philadelphia sports fans get ripped for being mean and booing and stuff. And it's a working class town. But the reality is when it comes to sports, Philadelphians are really, really informed and pay very close attention. And so when you see a, a Philadelphia Flyers hockey game in Philly live, crowd picks up on every missed penalty, every missed pass, a poor line change, the goalie's position in the goal. Whereas when you watch, you know, Nashville or Phoenix hockey teams on television, which, quick side note, I mean, there are just some cities that should not have hockey teams, both because of their latitude and because of their just smallness as a city. Um, I think we need sort of a 2015 Mason-Dixon line for hockey teams that cuts off pretty much where the old Mason-Dixon line does. Um, I guess I'd extend it down to Washington. The fact that the LA Kings are winning multiple Stanley Cups as an old school hockey fan is just infuriating. But like with all sports, it really comes down to management and ownership and how you build a team. Just look at the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, whoever thought that Oklahoma City could handle a major basketball franchise, and yet they have two of the best five players in Durant and Westbrook, who are just phenomenal every year when they're healthy and always give them a shot. And those fans are so into it. And San Antonio fans are so into it. And the thing I do like about these smaller cities with, when it comes to sports franchises, other than hockey, is that they're sort of like college towns. They're like, you know, Austin or um, Ann Arbor. You know, and those cities are college towns literally and are crazy about their teams, University of Texas, University of Michigan. But in San Antonio, Oklahoma City, those basketball teams are really the only game in town. And because they're small cities and they can't generate enough money compared to the big Midwest, West Coast, Northeast cities, 
management and ownership has to be very crafty and very clever and smart. And so, ironically, money can't buy me love. Well, money definitely can't buy me sports championships. Trust me, as a Philadelphia sports fan, I mean, even New York has really struggled for the most part over the last 10 years. Um, although historically with the Yankees, they've been great. The highest payroll teams in baseball, which is the only sport without a salary cap, are really performing poorly. And the fact that the Royals look like they might go to the World Series again and that the Tampa Bay Rays had a run of being really good over a number of years, even though their payroll was like a fifth of what the Philadelphia or Boston or New York payrolls are. So that part I like about small cities and sports. The pressure's lower, the stage isn't so big. Um, it really, I think, takes a little bit of a load off the athletes. Although, it can backfire if the one team in town is just really getting stinky. Because if those people stop coming to the games and buying stuff, those franchises are in big trouble. Even Seattle lost their basketball team, the Supersonics, to coincidentally, Oklahoma City. So if hockey is kind of the most hardcore sport in the sense of the loyalty and devotion of the fans, football, just by the nature and size of its audience, is the least hardcore sport. Plenty of Americans will tell you it's their favorite sport, but that doesn't make it a more hardcore sport because the more people you have, the more watered down it gets. The TV ratings for football are off the charts, but there are a lot of teams that can't even fill up the stadiums for eight home games. And not just small market teams. I mean, I'll give it to Eagles fans. We sell out that thing um, every single week during the football season. But football has become more and more removed from the live sports experience, which is what, in principle, in my mind, should drive interest. Not that you're going to every game but that you do go to a few games every year. The long seasons in basketball and hockey, and especially baseball, that you get to go to those games, and that gives meaning to all the other games, both before you go and after you go. Before you go, you go in saying, okay, we stink, or okay, we're doing great, so we're going to win a game here, or you stink, and we're going to lose the game, but then they win, and you're really excited about it because you're not expecting it. And that just drives the consumption of sports going forward. And I think that's why you're seeing baseball and hockey become so localized. Because it's such a long season, you really can't expect that a national audience will follow baseball teams that aren't their own over a six-month period in 162 games. It's just not realistic, especially when the games go three and a half, four hours, which is a major problem in all sports that they're trying to fix. But with commercials, it's making it really, really difficult. But even with commercials, sports has a built-in advantage over any other television show because it's purely live television. Now, I have friends who, because they hate commercials so much, will DVR the game and then start it like an hour in so they can just fast forward through. Personally, especially for big games, whether it's a football game at the end of the season or a playoff game, I just can't do that. A lot of the excitement is driven through the immediacy of it. And so sports has been the one thing where ratings are going up, whereas every other television, it's going down. And a big part of that is because of the live nature of it. However, 
I believe that sports has a major crisis on the horizon. And it's partially individual to each sport, and it's partially about sports in general. And there are a lot of factors they share. Seasons are too long, there's too many games, there's too many commercials. In football, you've got concussion issues. In baseball, you've got steroid issues. In hockey, you have personality issues in the sense of the players lacking any personality, which makes hockey both boring off the ice and the least like reality television, which is, I think, what I was trying to get to before, because hockey players don't say anything and there's so little drama outside of the fact that coaches get fired all the time in hockey. Besides that, there's just not that much drama. I like to listen to sports podcasts sometimes. I find them kind of relaxing in the sense of even though some of these personalities are loud and annoying, there are some sports personalities that aren't loud and annoying, that are smart. And with everything going on in the world and how fucked up the world is and how stressed out I am with my day-to-day, -day, as everyone is, it's nice to just have a little escapism there. I just don't watch a lot of television, and so I tend to listen to podcasts, and because of that, I'm making my own podcast. I, because how much I've learned to love the format, which is basically going backwards to radio, but without commercials, which makes it the ultimate. Something that radio and TV neither have is the commercial-free nature of it. But regardless, it's getting to the point where every year, the off-the-field, off-the-court, off-the-ice stuff is dominating. And this is where sports enters into its own stratosphere, because... As we've talked about, there's a vicarious nature of sports having to do with physicality and athleticism and money and fame and glory. But it's also become one of the only spaces that we can tackle societal issues. Guys like Stephen A. Smith, you might not have heard of him. He's a New York-born guy, pretty controversial TV and radio personality. I personally love him just because he wrote in Philly for a long time and wrote a lot about Allen Iverson, who's one of my favorite athletes. But I also love him because when there is a societal topic that comes up, whether it's race or gender, he is not afraid to talk about it. And Lord knows he has been suspended multiple times and plenty of slaps on the wrist, usually because he's so blunt and he's trying to get so much information out there that it's almost impossible in a two-hour TV show or a four-hour radio show to not say something mildly offensive, even if you don't intend it. I, I don't really want to go that far into individual sports broadcasters, commentators, analysts talking heads, etc. But just over the last couple of years, I mean, there's been major domestic abuse and child abuse cases in the NFL. In baseball, it's drug use, as well as immigrant issues, people from poor Latin countries. I guess the, the most notorious in the last couple of years is a kid from Cuba named Yasiel Puig, who's basically built like Willie Mays crossed with Babe Ruth. But he just comes from such a poor culture, such an oppressed culture, at least that's how he talks about it, how other people talk about it, that he's just having a really hard time with the money and the fame and the expectations. Hockey also has concussion issues, like football. Basketball is probably the quote-unquote cleanest of the sports, 
something I really try and point out is that basketball is the blackest of all sports in terms of percentages. Football's pretty black, but NBA is almost entirely black in terms of the stars and superstars. I mean, Dirk Nowitzki is really one of the only ones, along with you know Larry Bird and some figures in the past, in terms of today's game. It's an almost completely black-dominated sport. And yet... Studies show that if you compare the NBA, Major League Baseball, and football, there's actually fewer incidents from a percentage standpoint by far in the NBA when it comes to DUIs or abuse cases or getting into fights. You see that way more with football. It's such an aggressive sport to begin with, not to mention your career can literally be over in a second, more so in football than all the other sports. And so I think when 22-year-olds get their first $5 million, they say, well, this might not last, so I'm just going to live it up while I can. And <laughs> 25-year-olds with millions of dollars who run up huge tabs at clubs and bars and restaurants and are out till 4 in the morning. I mean, I don't want to, you know, reveal too much information here because I think I've grown and matured, but I don't think I would have been able to handle that amount of fame or money until at least my late 20s, if ever. Probably never, especially the fame part. I think the money part, not so much, but the fame and then all the hangers on. I didn't include hockey because, as previously mentioned, hockey players tend to be pretty good guys. Not that there's never incidents, but most of those incidents are on the ice when someone slams someone's head into the boards, and NHL is in a good job of cracking down on that. But to go back to sports commentators and social issues... They even talk about on ESPN, on national television, they talk about Ferguson, they talk about Trayvon Martin. You know, Trayvon Martin, I think, was a turning point because LeBron James somehow is a controversial figure because he made one dumb mistake and he's now atoned for it by coming back to Cleveland. But he is politically conscious and politically aware, and when he can be within the bounds of being the face of the NBA politically active, and there's that famous picture with him and the entire Miami Heat a couple years ago after the Trayvon Martin thing where they're just all wearing hoodies, and it was just like hashtag Trayvon, and a lot of people were upset about that. I'm glad that LeBron just basically said F you by not saying anything because I think progressive people or just smart people understood what he was doing. You contrast that to Michael Jordan, who famously said when asked about politics, Republicans buy shoes too. And Michael Jordan has really not been involved in any major political or social causes despite his fame and his money. And so I think LeBron is inspiring a new generation. But the fact is that LeBron talking about this, whether you're comfortable with it or not, has driven discussion on ESPN and other sports networks about these social issues because if LeBron's talking about it and if Kevin Durant's talking about it, then maybe we should also be talking about it, especially because basketball players tend to come from poor inner city areas, whereas football and baseball players tend to come from middle America. And so basketball really bucks the trend, not so much bucks the trend, but it just 
takes apart the notion that somehow the athletes that come from inner city, especially if they're black, are more likely to cause problems or get in trouble with the law. And as previously mentioned, that's not really the case. So even when I'm mad at sports or just sick of them, it's refreshing and a good sign that these issues are being talked about on Sports Network. But that makes the lack of coverage of a lot of these issues on mainstream news channels even worse. If sports, which is a giant facade in some ways, especially the media side of sports, is a giant facade, and yet they're talking about some of these issues that, you know, the networks don't even talk about, or at least don't talk about as honestly. And I think part of that, and I'll give credit to ESPN here, and yes, I basically give credit to Disney <laughs> in some form or another in every podcast. Uh, I apologize for that, and I did rip them about Wally, um, although I loved Wally, but Disney's become a little bit more progressive in recent years, I guess you could say. But ESPN, which is owned along with ABC by Disney, has become the most diverse media network in all of American media. If you just flip on randomly and you have no interest in sports, just flip on ESPN or ESPN2, by far the majority of shows has at least one minority. And in some cases, especially when it comes to football and basketball, you'll have all African Americans or other minorities. They're young and they're smart and they're motivated and Guys like Stephen A. Smith and Mike Wilbon from Pardon the Interruption sort of paved the way for this. Stephen A. Smith's very open about feeling the obligation of representing some of the silent issues in the black community um, when they do come up in relation to sports. And while he's taking heat for that, as I mentioned earlier, it has definitely opened the door to these younger voices who are not afraid to talk about these issues. And at some point, I don't know if it was a specific instance or it happened over time, it probably happened over time, ESPN decided that they were gonna A, get way more diverse, and B, to a certain point, be tolerant and even embrace the discussion of social issues. Now, like with all media, controversial issues, it's hard to know where that line is supposed to be drawn. But again, black Americans are being empowered through sports in a number of different ways that are beyond just the athletes. Problem is, and this is where the American dream thing comes in and is difficult to untangle, is that ultimately it's still a tiny fraction of black Americans who make it to professional sports, and it's even a much smaller fraction who can play long enough and are good enough to make serious money. And so kids who are from difficult backgrounds, inside cities, who don't have a lot of options, who go to a terrible school, who have a bad family situation, it's natural to look at these athletes as your idols and want to achieve that. This, of course, has been a criticism of quote-unquote rap culture for decades now. Everybody wants to be a rapper. You know, you often hear that every rapper wants to be a basketball player, and every basketball player wants to be a rapper, uh, which is pretty funny, you know, if you ever heard any of Allen Iverson or Shaq's hip-hop tracks, they are unique. Um, <laughs> but I don't know whether the essential equation has changed from 
Bill Russell in the 60s playing for the Celtics at a time when Boston was very, very racist. And I'm sorry, Boston, I don't mean to rip you. The historical reality, though, is that black athletes in Boston, really up until modern times, because it's such a white city, black athletes have faced a lot, a lot of issues. And while Bill Russell went on to become one of the greatest basketball players ever, He's a very secretive and sensitive guy and does not like to talk about that period. You can only imagine in the 60s in downtown Boston what was going on with Bill Russell and other black American athletes. But essentially, the equation hasn't really changed since then. You know, it's almost reminiscent of, like, science fiction movies. Blade Runner, classic, all-time great sci-fi movie. Harrison Ford, early 80s, Ridley Scott where there are floating signs and giant billboards that look very much like Tokyo that are all advertising going to work off-world and that somehow this is going to create new opportunity for you if you are working class or even below. Now, of course, this is a reflection of, if not a direct um, interpretation or portrayal of the notion of the frontier in America, or even earlier, imperialism with the Europeans. People think that governments and the leaders of the church and the people who are really in charge in these European countries were responsible for all of the atrocities committed in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. The truth is, they are responsible, but indirectly. They're responsible in the sense of they were the driving forces behind these pretty horrible enterprises, but the people who were actually doing the terrible stuff were generally poor people or working class people from those European countries who were promised the same thing as Blade Runner. Essentially, go move out to a whole new land. It'll be cheap land. You can deal with the natives. You can do whatever you want, essentially. Some people, like Cecil Rhodes or you know whoever got rich off of these sorts of things, but many poor people just traded poverty for extreme danger when it came to disease or local warfare or, you know, dangerous animals and all of the other things. Essentially, like Blade Runner, imperialism, when it came to settlers, was a form of social outlet. Too many people and not enough money or resources to go around. There's really only two things you can do. The first is what I previously described, which is send them to another part of the world, or in Blade Runner's case, to another planet. Get them out of the way, dangle promises of riches to them, whether it's truthful or not, whether it's realistic or not, and just get them out. The other way, which is the way we deal with it now, because we have to deal with it now, because there's nowhere else to go, at least unless we get the space program going again, is to stay put and just continue being poor. But we're going to give you these little other promises and dreams that are social outlets, like sports, to relieve that pressure. Wouldn't be a Bizzlecast without mentioning The Matrix, but in this case, it really applies. The notion of the systemic anomaly. Now, most people saw only the first Matrix movie, or they disliked the later Matrix movies and just sort of forgot about them. And that's personal preference, but the second Matrix movie, especially towards the end, reveals some huge surprises about the Matrix universe, if you will, that 
directly affect the plot, but are more interesting on a philosophical level. In the first matrix, we learn that humans are living in vats that they don't know about to power machines who have enslaved them, but are forced to rely on humans' life energy, essentially, for their own continued existence. We also learn that there is a resistance being led by Lawrence Fishburne, aka Morpheus, and later led by Keanu Reeves once he becomes the one and sort of recognizes his destiny. And the two of them, along with Trinity and the whole crew, spend most of the second movie trying to get to what they call the source, which is basically the computer mainframe. And they think they have a shot at taking down the mainframe and then they could free all people. Problem was, it was all a lie. The entire prophecy that supposedly predicted not only Neo's coming as the one, as Jesus with guns, but that the prophecy predicted that the one would end the war with the machines. And we learn at the end of The Matrix Reloaded, the second movie, that not only is Neo not the first one, but that there's been five other ones before him. And it's a cycle perpetuated by machines to give humans false hope. And the really nefarious and brilliant part here is that it's meant to give even the people that are supposedly outside the matrix false hope. The prophecy is implanted and the whole point of it is for the tiny part of the population that is just so innately, instinctively opposed to any sort of authority that they can eventually smell the matrix or, or detect it somehow or figure it out and find a way out. That's a way of relieving pressure, as we talked about before with Blade Runner, imperialism, the American frontier. But just as nefarious is we find out that initially the matrix controlled humans so far down into their subconscious that even the majority of humanity, who's not naturally rebellious or anti-authoritarian, rejected it. And so the machines came up with the solution, which was they would give every single person a choice whether or not to be in the matrix, even though it's on a subconscious level that they're not aware of, and of course, the implications of this are that people want to not have freedom. They want, at some level, to be enslaved or at least have their lives circumscribed. But that even the people that get outside the matrix, it's just a release valve to prevent rebellions and uprisings from going on inside the matrix because the machines have by far the military advantage outside of the matrix in the quote-unquote real world. And so the social outlet that we thought we knew about in the first Matrix, where the few people who really couldn't take living in the Matrix could escape, even though, in essence, they were being allowed to escape by the powers that be, being the, you know, leader of the machines or the architect, as they call him, was just another form of social outlet. And social control and a really disturbing and challenging view of the levels to which we're ready to accept the lies of a better life elsewhere 
without critically examining them because in so many cases the probabilities are just so low that we either don't consider these possibilities or we find ways to accept the lies because we can't deal with the real truth there. And I think that's what we're seeing in sports. As long as you have poor, uneducated people believing that they can be LeBron James or they can be on The Bachelor or one of these shows and make money or at least get famous and then try and make money like the American Idol scenario. And then of course there's the lottery which I think all of us understand how screwed up the lottery is on so many levels. The insane amount of money going to people who can barely manage a small amount of money. The kind of ridiculous and disturbing but not wholly surprising statistics that people who get that much money in that short of a time tend to blow it quickly. They say in the NFL something like 70% of all NFL players are broke or near bankruptcy within five years of retiring. It's a little bit of a misleading stat because well over half of the players who either get drafted or on a practice squad in the NFL either never make it or are cut very early or don't get big contracts or just fizzle out before they can make the big money. And the NFL, again, in being almost a pure representation of America in so many ways, pays its players proportionally not a lot of money other than the quarterbacks and a couple big stars. It's pretty open, not even a secret, that the NFL Players Union is one of the worst, probably the worst, and that players really have no power. The owners have all the control. Contracts aren't guaranteed, unlike in the other sports. You can basically be cut at any time for a team to save money and see a fraction of the money that you thought you were signing for. And the media perpetuates this by saying, you know, Deshaun Jackson just signed a five-year, $29 million contract when really it's only two years and $12 million that's guaranteed. Still a lot of money, but he's a huge superstar. So to get a two-year guaranteed contract is really ridiculous. And the media is just playing along because... Every media network either has the NFL or wants the NFL. And so a huge controversy last year, which wasn't even really a controversy, was not the Ray Rice video and account of with Ray Rice in the elevator with his now wife just punching her unconscious and then dragging her along, which was horrific. And yet, who gets suspended? From a media standpoint, Bill Simmons, who is the creator of Grantland.com, which is nominally owned by ESPN, but he has full autonomy. He really set a new bar in terms of writing about sports, mainly in both the creativity of it and the length of it. He proved that people will read three to 5,000 word articles if they're well-written. There are smart people out there like you and I, who like sports to different degrees, but if it's a story or athlete we like, we'll read it. And the presentation's good. And he has the number one sports podcast for the last at least five or six years called The BS Report. And on one of The BS Reports, which is pre-recorded, usually, he ripped Roger Goodell during the Ray Rice investigation, called Roger Goodell a liar, and basically a shill, 
for the owners, just a puppet of the ownership, and was lying to cover his ass and everybody else's ass about what really happened to Ray Rice. Now, in recent months, it came out with a prosecutor, or at least an investigator, that, that what Goodell claimed was at least partially true. He didn't have all of the information, but he was hiding some stuff. And so back to last year or two years ago, whenever that happened with Ray Rice, they suspended Simmons for two weeks. And Bill Simmons is very powerful. I mean, he's probably the most powerful voice at ESPN overall, considering he's on national television, he's on podcasts, he's a writer that puts out a ton of articles, has a, a really popular website, Grantland, that also talks a lot about pop culture and movies and television as well as sports. Suspended him for two, maybe three weeks, and it came straight from the top, from the CEO of ESPN, and the CEO of ESPN loves Simmons. <laughs> I mean, the, the CEO of ESPN was basically the guy who happened to stumble across some Simmons articles and hired him about 15 years ago or so, when Simmons was just kind of getting going, and yet the CEO was the one who suspended him. Simmons jokes about it now. He took it very well, but to get suspended for calling the commissioner a liar, sure, that's a little inflammatory, but... The reality is, if we can't do that on a podcast, then we have to re-examine some of our priorities vis-a-vis -vis freedom of speech in this country. I'm not at all an activist when it comes to sports, but I spent those three weeks just lambasting both ESPN and the NFL in the blatant hand-holding under the table that was going on there, where whether it was Goodell himself, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, or some third party that worked for him that conveyed that it wasn't okay that Bill Simmons, who's the man, would call Roger Goodell a liar. I don't know how that worked. So to kind of connect it a little bit to Bizzlecast 1, where we talked about mega movie franchises and how their apparently progressive themes sort of neutralize our ability to fully critique the materialist side of things when it comes to those movie properties. One must wonder the same thing about sports, especially sports media. While I respect the intelligence and somewhat complex way that analysts and commentators on ESPN and other sports networks tackle some of these social issues, I wonder if this is a direct Disney covering their ass again, to bring it back to Disney. I accuse Disney of covering their asses with Star Wars and Wally -E and the Marvel movies through seemingly embracing the progressive themes of the movies while ignoring or even hiding the dark side of all of these materialist properties, making it hard for us to judge what's really happening. And, you know, maybe we can also accuse them of covering their asses by saying, well, you can talk about these social issues, but only to a certain point. And then we're going to cut you off, and maybe you're going to get suspended or fined or something like that. And we have this sort of arbitrary line. But what this has done is distract from the sports themselves, which you can probably tell I haven't even talked about in a while here. Um, I went to get all into sports and simulation in sports, but you just can't help it because so much of sports talk is about things other than sports. And in the bigger picture, as horrific as 
what Ray Rice did to his wife and punching her in the face and knocking her out was, the reality is domestic abuse that bad or worse is going on thousands and thousands and thousands of times a day, and maybe more. I don't even want to know the total number, even if it were possible to measure, which it's probably not. Bottom line is, it's messed up. Adrian Peterson, the Vikings running back for many years, who's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame and is easily the best running back over the last you know, decade or so, even though he's on a bad team, beat the shit out of his four-year-old. I, I wouldn't even look at the pictures because I'd read the descriptions of the pictures and that horrified me. But let's just say the boy had lash marks and other cuts and bruises and injuries on his entire body. And I mean his entire body. You can fill in the blanks. Adrian Peterson's from Texas. He went to court. Accusations were made. Defense made their argument. And as far as I can tell, he got off completely. Now, he was suspended for most of one year, lost, you know, $20 million, although he already has tons of money, and he's publicly humiliated, although I don't think a lot of these guys really care about being publicly humiliated because they're just so disconnected. But he got let off. And... The coverage of when the picture was released was so much greater than the coverage by the time the judge made his or her decision to let Adrian Peterson off. And part of that is that stories just lose momentum. Just like Aaron Hernandez from the Patriots has been tried for murder, and this is going on for a couple of years now, media lost interest, Adrian Peterson gets off for essentially sexually abusing his child. Um, I guess it depends on your definition of sexual abuse. The media loses interest, the stories lose steam, and when you have a picture, like with Adrian Peterson's four-year-old son, or video, especially Ray Rice beating his wife, people forget. When it was just accusations about Ray Rice beating his wife, before those videos came out, the outrage was somewhat muted. And then the first video to come out was just outside the elevator, where you saw him dragging her and everyone in the sports world, because Ray Rice supposedly is a great guy, everyone in the sports world, especially the men, came out and rolled out every excuse possible for, well, maybe his... Wife had gotten too drunk, you know, Ray Rice said she had fallen and hit her head on the elevator. You know, to anyone with critical thinking, <laughs> I think the chances of her falling and hitting her head on the elevator, while not impossible in terms of knocking her out, are lower than the possibility of someone smacking her in the head. Nonetheless, it wasn't until the Inside the Elevator video came out showing Ray Rice punching his wife, which, I, again, I only watched in like a small animated gif. I, I just did, could not handle watching it over and over and over again. That's very disturbing. I won't even go there. But it's so sad that it comes down to we need direct video evidence. And even when we have direct video evidence, Ray Rice really didn't get punished that much. His career was really tailing off. By the time the suspension was over, no one really wanted him. And Adrian Peterson is probably going to get a big fat contract from the Cowboys, even though we do have pictures of his son with all the marks. You know, I don't want to speculate about if Adrian Peterson's son was caught getting beaten by his dad on video. Maybe people take it more seriously. Hard to know. So we've been talking about an hour now. And other than the first like 15, 20 minutes, there's been a lot of actual sports talk. 
that's partially intentional on my part, but it's also partially just a function of what sports has become, which is, as I said in the beginning, the ultimate reflection of both the best and worst parts of our society. The worst parts are pretty clear. I've been talking about them for a while. The best parts are, yes, a few people can escape a bad economic situation by becoming good athletes. If it's in their nature, they might even help other people in their community. Hopefully they're doing that. The activism and ethnic or racial solidarity of athletes, led by LeBron James um, in the wake of Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and so forth, very good sign. But I, I think with sports, and this goes for all cultures, this is well transcendent above just Western culture, is sports as a sort of simulation of militarism. Now, with football, that militarism is very apparent and very direct and on the surface. Basketball, which is sort of more of a gentleman's game, or baseball, it's not so much apparent in the physical play itself, but just in the sense that there are sides and they're competing and there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. It's the same thing you know, as a blockbuster film. Sports is basically just a blockbuster film that's on television with commercials and happens to go for months and months and months. And you can pick up different places. You don't have to watch the whole movie, which also gives an advantage over television, even HBO and Showtime and AMC and all these great shows because, you know, you can't really watch The Wire or Breaking Bad or Homeland without watching every episode. With sports, you can kind of go in and out, as I do. I haven't really watched a full sports game since the Eagles season ended, and as you know, I'm, again, that was sort of a social event, but it is the oppositional binary, which is really what defines human thinking. I mean, the Taoists were onto this very early, uh, and, and it took Western philosophers quite a bit to catch up, which is the basic notion that if you have one thing, you have its opposite. Even if it's just an imagined one thing, or if it's an extinct one thing, or something yet to be created. As soon as you create something, you create its opposite. That's binary opposition. And Taoist philosophy, without going too far into it, because I'm definitely going to do a Taoism podcast very, very soon, is to basically explode or at least disarm those binaries so that we can see the world more clearly in its sort of complexity, but also simplicity, that isn't just defined by ideas and objects, and the opposite of those ideas and objects. But America is a nationalistic country, and, you know, Europe can hate on the United States as much as it wants, but Europe had extreme nationalism well before the U.S. ever had extreme nationalism. Even on the small scale, if you just look at, you know, pre-modern cultures, or, or just, you know, sort of basic um, you know, rural cultures or cultures in wilderness areas that still exist somewhat today. You know, there's tribal warfare, there's inter-ethnic warfare, there's inter-religious warfare on both small and huge levels. Humans come from chimpanzees, and you don't need to watch Planet of the Apes to know that chimps are not exactly uh, dovish, is maybe the word. They're not peacenikim, as we call them in Israel, peaceniks. Um, and so we need an outlet for war, and I am a very nonviolent person. I 
haven't really been in a fight since elementary school, which doesn't really count because that's not a fight. I took martial arts in high school, but that was really more about the discipline and the exercise. You know, I enjoyed sparring, but it wasn't like I, I liked hurting other people. Usually if I'm violent, <laughs> it's just a very occasional freak out because I've had a little too much to drink and I'm a little frustrated. Maybe I'll, you know throw a chair. Yeah, I've never really broken anything, but I think most guys out there can, can relate to either having done this once in a while or knowing people who do. Um, but that aggressive instinct is not very strong in me. I find aggressiveness to be exhausting, <laughs> to be totally truthful. And yet, I love sports, at least at certain times in my life. And I just wonder if it's tapping into part of my subconscious that is male and that is ancient. And that is the warfare that underlies humanity's existence and evolution, going all the way back to pre-humanity. Still defines it today in many ways, and sadly enough, unless we <laughs> embrace my eco-religion and some of the other ideas that we've been talking about, looks like it's going to continue on into the future. I think as a society, despite the hypocrisy of all these foreign wars, I do think society in general is getting a little less aggressive. But I don't know if that's because of education or just because consumerism has just suppressed it. You know, instead of getting mad, we just go buy something. Sort of unloading aggressive tendencies and transmuting them into consumerist tendencies. And if it's the former, in terms of education and maybe even real evolution, then that's a slightly good sign that we can build off. But if it's just the zombification caused by consumerism, then we really have a problem. Because not only have we not eliminated it, but we're repressing it. And most psychological studies and just observation of people who are self-aware um, repression does not usually work because it's impossible to keep something repressed forever and eventually it explodes and can maybe be even worse than before. Whether it be global warming, lack of resources, or whatever, and the consumerist bubble explodes, then all of a sudden we'll really see what people are made of. And then people are scared about that. And escapism like sports and blockbuster movies, um, especially for men, help kind of get away from that. And I guess that's the thing I will give reality show credit, just this one thing, is that while it's totally superficial and artificial, it's not some manifestation of aggression. If anything, it's about pacification. So if men are being pacified... Let me just stop doing men and women here, because I feel bad. I know it, there's crossover. So if people who like sports, mostly men, some women, are being pacified by the competitive aggression of sports so that they can project their own issues of aggression onto sports, then reality TV is a form of pacification. It's a form of just making smart people really dumb just for brief periods, but enough to relieve stress, to relieve anger. Plenty of women have anger and aggression issues. I think it's obviously a mistake to create a binary out of that. It's also a representation of materialism. You know, men buy sports jerseys and women follow the fashion trends of the Kardashians and whoever else is really hot, both literally and figuratively, at the moment in reality TV. Often women, I've noticed, actually 
like to critique things like fashion on reality TV and aren't even really interested in what's going on and just sort of critique the, the look of, you know, of characters or whatever. And uh, I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just, that's just an observation. I could be way off. So to kind of bring it to a close here, as I said in the beginning, I wanted this to be a more grounded podcast. And if it's not as sort of deep and profound as the last podcast or two, I apologize. But I just felt it was necessary you know, since pop culture is one of the things that is in my sort of podcast mission that I talk about sports, because I talked a lot about movies, and I've talked about a lot about technology, and I think sports is not as important as technology, but definitely as important as movies, maybe more so. It would be interesting to look at the yearly returns of all the movies and television shows up against all of sports. I'm pretty sure sports would win by a mile, even with Disney making billions of dollars a year. When you add the gambling industry, I've heard statistics that if you add the gambling industry and you add the major sports, we're talking well over a trillion dollars. Movies and TV don't get anywhere near that. So the fact that players may be getting paid $5 million a year may turn some people off, especially when they have attitude or personality problems or sketchy behavior. But most of the insane amount of money created by sports and sports culture is going into the pockets of a small number of people. And this, of course, isn't a surprise. I mean, that's American capitalism. It's not that I think we should go easier on athletes in terms of their behavior, but I think it's hypocritical because there are a lot of owners out there who are probably in sexual harassment lawsuits that we don't even know about because they have the power and the money and the clout to hide that. They've probably employed lots of non-athletes, either in sports or in their corporations, who have done really horrible things. We know people who have done horrible things. All of us have done at least a couple bad things, hopefully nothing horrible. So let's just stop being hypocritical here. Let's not put everything on the athletes. We already have enough simulations. Let's just accept sports for what it is, which is a voluntary simulation, which I think is a good sign in the sense of at least being aware that we're not really dealing with reality with sports. Or at least some people realize that. But to go back to a point that I kind of teased before, and I'll just finish up here, is that all of the other stuff around sports, other than the games, controversies, big business, the arrests, the fashion, mass media, ESPN, other sports networks, the national news leading off its stories about an athlete getting arrested when there's so much else around the world that's more pressing and important and on a greater scale. I don't want to say I feel bad for athletes because, you know, they do make a lot of money. If they're smart, like, you know, guys like LeBron, then they'll be in good shape. And LeBron's supporting a lot of people, um, just personally, as far as I know, from his, his own community, as well as his bigger projects that he does. And he's not alone. There are a lot of athletes doing this. But let's just take some of this pressure off of the athletes to be the perfect manifestation of a human being, both physically and morally. They already are the most close to perfection in terms of being a physical specimen that we're ever going to find. That should be enough, as long as they keep their shit together, don't get into too much trouble, let's look at ourselves in the mirror, which is really, you know, kind of my main message. 
um, will continue to be. Um, and when I say we, I don't necessarily mean you guys, um, although we all should be looking in the mirror regularly, but I just think as a society, need to look in the mirror. And sports has become an escapism that is year-round, 365, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The movie, you go in, you have two hours of escapism, and you come out. And then you have to deal with real life again. With sports, if you're really obsessed, you can just watch and follow sports year-round and just be completely removed from reality. And that's never good, but that's not the fault of sports. I just worry that sports is going to get dragged down by all this other stuff, if it hasn't already. If you just look at the NBA this year, there's some great young athletes who are good guys, too, seemingly who are just really exciting and I don't know why that can't be enough for people but it's just not in today's day and age and at least reality television is open about what it is and its mission. Sports won't admit it and I think this is a men issue as well. Same way men have trouble talking about their feelings in a lot of cases, sort of how sports is. It's like they're afraid to talk about their, you know, their feelings in uh, real life other than these occasional social issue discussions that go on. And so we just put it all on sports. Ultimately, reality TV at least is truthful in what it is. Um, and I think that that's a positive reflection. Again, not trying to be too gender specific here, but you know, I just watch people, whether they're my friends or people at bars or at friends' houses. I think that we know from statistically most people who watch sports are men, especially outside of football. We know that reality TV is at least significantly over 50% female. I won't go beyond that because I just don't have the numbers. But I think it's, I hate to use the word commendable when it comes to reality TV, but at least it's honest. It is what it is. And men out there, get your heads out of your asses. Realize that sports is just sports. It's a form of reality television. It's a form of reality television that I personally find very enjoyable. But stick with the sports and the occasional social issues. Let's just try and separate things and not be hypocrites about this and continue to be critical about these issues and about the way we treat them. So that is the bizzle on sports. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I keep changing ideas about when next podcast will be, so I won't tease it because I don't know, but it will be out hopefully within the next week or less, and I thank you for joining me as always. Bizzle out.